to the Netherlands 1974 Club And we have a special guest today, and it's the author of a book, The Nearly Man. Aidan Williams, welcome in the clubhouse. Thank you very much, uh, Jan Willem. Really delighted to be here. No, it's great to have you here. And uh, um, as I said already in the announcement, when there is a book that has Johan Cruyff on the cover and has the Netherlands inside, I cannot avoid to say, well, this has to be a special Netherlands 1974 clubhouse. Uh, even there are three Dutch teams mentioned in your in your book. We'll get to that uh, soon. Um, first, um, as a kind of a change, I want to start with some dilemmas. So uh, 10 dilemmas and you just have to pick one of the okay. two that I'm putting to you. <laughs> so, so maybe it's a way to learn to know you and your way of looking at football. Maradona or Messi? Oh, Maradona. Pelé, Neymar. <laughs> uh, Pelé. Ne Neymar rolls around too much. <laughs> Beckenbauer, Mateus. Uh, Beckenbauer, classier. Yeah. Eusebio, Cristiano Ronaldo. <laughs> uh, Eusebio. And then Eusebio or Figo. Oh, interesting. Uh, I'll still go for Eusebio just because of the sort of breakthrough nature of his 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 time. Great. Uh, Barça Real. Barça. Boca River. Boca. PSG Marseille. Oh Marseille. Bayern Borussia Dortmund. <laughs> Dortmund. Pep or Klopp. <laughs> Um, I, ooh, I think I would I would have said Pep until more recently, but now I think Klopp. Then Michels or Van Gaal? <laughs> Michels. And last but not least, Michels or Cruyff? Cruyff, every time. Wow. So that is very interesting. And basically, uh, if I'm going quickly through the list, uh, you have a very um, strong feeling for the classics. Must have been, of course, when you when you write a book like like that, when you go <laughs> deep into even going back to the Argentina team of 1930. Um, maybe maybe a question about Paris Saint Germain or Marseille. You said Marseille. Yeah, I think it's um, uh, it's part of the traditionalist um, PSG. I don't want to say they're new because that, that goes back quite some time now, but. Um, they're, they're a far newer club than Marseille. They don't have that length of history. Then, and I appreciate this makes me a hypocrite once you start talking about the club that I follow, um, the, the modern nature of the state ownership and, and things like that for PSG, eh, kind of great. So that's not, that's yeah. not why we get into football. It's, you know, it's the kind of bought success that I don't particularly like, although I guess Marseille have had a bit of their own board success in the past as well. <laughs> but I mean, uh, on the other hand, bringing together Neymar, Messi, uh, Mbappé, um, Oh, Verratti. it's exciting. Yeah, oh, it's absolutely exciting. Um, but it's equally quite entertaining to see them fail every year in the Champions League. <laughs> That's well. It's a little bit like like City also. Yes. <laughs> Somehow it doesn't doesn't happen there. And even Pep said recently that maybe he's not good enough to to bring them the Champions League. Well, um, also interesting, uh, Michels or Van Gaal. You you clearly said Michels. Yeah, and I, I think well that harks back harks um, to the theme of this book, I suppose. It's just the the era. Now, when I was young, my thoughts of Michels were. Um, from the 1988 Dutch team, from the European champions that year. And obviously there was quite, you know, it wasn't quite the style of 74, but there was certain, um, there was a certain style and panache about that team. Some of those players, you know, Van Basten with his incredible goals, especially in the final, the three he got against England um, brought him swiftly into our consciousness. Uh, but Hullit, uh, Rijkaard, Koeman, uh, so many terrific names. And obviously, Michels was the elder statesman at that point. 
but you know he came into our consciousness or my consciousness sorry at that that time um because i'd, I'd be well i was born in 74 so i <laughs> i missed wow. out on all of that uh <laughs> from being aware of it but obviously as a student of, of the game's history uh particularly from the international sphere uh learning more about Mickles and, and what he's brought to the game and, and what he sort of instigated along with uh various others at that time uh that that marks him out to me van gaal yeah i think in the 90s what he did with ajax at that stage was 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 fantastic and it was kind of groundbreaking at that point more recently he's just a bit more irritating i find <laughs> well we don't think so i mean <laughs> he's he brought us back to the world cup uh, uh, yeah that's he... probably more to do with this time in, in manchester united where obviously i saw him more um it, it wasn't the best from the dutch national team perspective obviously the 2014 world cup went really really well with him in charge um, don't, you, don't you think that manchester united should regret not to continue at least for one more year uh, his contract when he won the fa cup when he made these youngsters play very well and that all got lost in in, in the next couple of years well yeah especially when you see the state they're in more recently <laughs> a little bit of longevity a few, yeah. a few years ago might not have been a bad idea Absolutely. yeah yeah well okay uh, Let's forget about uh, Manchester United. <laughs> That's another subject, but still, um, let's go to uh, Netherlands 1974. And that's why we are here. The first question that I have uh, about it is, when did you see the final of the World Cup 74 for the first time? And do you remember with who and what were your feelings after watching it? Yeah, it will have been, um, or been with my dad, it will have been as a child. Um, so this would probably be, uh, I don't know, early to mid 1980s uh, in England, they, they they often replayed various classic matches on the TV at, at various times, you know, on a quiet Sunday afternoon, perhaps. Uh, this was in the days far before wall-to-wall television of, what well, wall-to-wall football on television that we have now, of course. You know, the only games we had live in, in England at the time were big internationals and a tournament or the FA Cup final. That was it. Um, so there were often replays. So it was a special, very special occasion. It, well, yeah, that made yeah that made it a big special experience. Of course, a, a sort of shared national experience. Whereas now, a game on TV isn't like that because there's so many of them. But they often did replays of old games. Now they did this of old league games and things uh, from highlights and so on. But they also did it of World Cup classics as well. So I equally remember watching uh, some games from even longer ago, like. Portugal against North Korea and things like that. But one of these that was on this series was uh, the Netherlands-West Germany final from 1974. Obviously, I had to have the context explained to me and things like that. I, I didn't necessarily know um, what, what what feelings were evoked by the Cruyff team at that time when I first saw it. However, just the sheer drama of you know the, the opening minute and the fact that the Germans never touched the ball. And obviously in, in, in England, uh, as, as in the Netherlands, you, you see Germany as a, one of your big rivals in sport. We do as well, uh, even though it's been a fairly one-way rivalry for a lot of the time. Um, but, you know, you see, seeing Germany beaten and seeing them, uh, well, or seeing them hopefully beaten or concede, it, it was it was quite exciting. So seeing them concede a goal within the first minute or so of a World Cup final, no less, without even touching the ball, that was just astonishing. So that that aspect of it blew me away. So from that point on, at this point, maybe I wasn't even fully aware of how it was going to turn out. Uh, I, I I probably was because you know I've had World Cup wall charts prior to this where you've seen the results and I, I knew that Netherlands had not won and I, I knew they'd been twice runners up at that time um so yes i guess i i probably did but as, as as i was watching it unfold you know that might have been more to the back of my mind so the sheer drama of that first moment was was astonishing and um you know absolutely magnificent to see you saw the final without having already seen other matches and and kind of uh, having a connection with the total football that they were playing with just the final and the first minute that was overwhelming and that was <laughs> Yeah, totally. The the mere fact that the other team, West Germany, had not touched the ball and were a goal behind that. Yeah, that is still still incredible. incredible. Yeah, and it was uh, from such a you know there was a I don't know 10, 20, 30 seconds of just faffing around at the back. Cruyff is practically in the back four at this point. 
yeah. uh, and then suddenly surges forward as if from absolutely nothing. He obviously picked the moment, saw the space, saw saw the situation, and just decided to to charge on through. Uh, yeah, oh, and so it's, it's, these three accelerations that he makes to get rid of of, of uh, Betty Fox, which at that moment he succeeded, um, and then Uli Hernes tried his best defensive skills. And, you know, <laughs> never leave that to uh, never leave that to uh, to an attacker. <laughs> <laughs> but that just shows the panic that it caused, and and uh, obviously as I then learned more about it, you know, the, the panic that it caused was understandable given. The way the Dutch have been playing in the second round, especially of that World Cup, um, that you know this, this, they had to really, really be on their guard against the attacking talents of this team, and it was, but it was just so explosive, and it just caused panic, and there was nothing they could do about it. Yeah, yeah. Also, also that uh, the position that Cruyff was playing, uh, of course, it's quite extreme in this final because he's really on the middle line. There's no one behind him, and he's going to attack. He's going straight to the goal. It's it's uh, also if you compare that to any other moments. I mean, we have the famous Maradona, of course, uh, but that's more whirling around, and 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 this is so so straight, one goal, and surprising everything. It's 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 amazing to see that moment. I can imagine that it was uh, such an experience for you. What was your age at that moment? Oh, I was probably only about ten uh, at, at the time that. That these things would have been on the TV, and I'm seeing that. But then, you know, I get to share in the Dutch frustration as it carried on that they didn't uh, push home their advantage really as they should have been able to do. I, I guess I only later appreciated that this West Germany side were actually very good as well. <laughs> you know, this wasn't as though it was, um, you know, an easy contest for the Dutch that they should have just breezed through. It was never going to be that. No, no, but even there, there though. Were, the, if you hear the stories later about the Dutch in the dressing room before they go on the pitch and, and all this noise that they're making and, and the, what the Germans call the arrogance uh, that they had. Mm -hmm. I've seen this, this final uh, a dozen, <coughs> dozen times. I think it was better than maybe uh, the delivery today is um, of the Dutch team. Um, but yes, absolutely, after the 1-0, that was so fast that... That even surprised them. But you know that in the first 10 minutes also, you see the German leaning backwards. There is not what we would have in the Netherlands. Oh my God, we're 1-0 we're down at home. This is not going to happen. We're going to attack. No, the Germans didn't attack in the first 10 minutes after that goal. Well, it's almost as if they were shell-shocked by it. Um, but I guess the Dutch also took a little bit of getting used to the situation too, because nobody could have expected to be in front so soon. And it, I guess it altered everybody's plans a little bit yeah. uh, right from the off. Yeah, the, the Germans, you're right. They, they looked a little bit startled and stunned by it all and didn't know, you know, like a boxer who's taken a, a heavy punch. And well, they didn't the change their strategy. What this was their yeah. strategy to lean back, let the Dutch come, you know, and then, then surround them and then uh, go for the quick pass to to, to Müller and, and Hoeneß, for instance. Uh, and they didn't change that strategy. It was maybe it was shell shock. Maybe it was also a lack of, of various uh, strategies. I mean, I, I haven't seen a real different strategy later. It was much more aggression that they put in it. I mean, uh, Reisbergen got very uh, much injured uh, in that game by Gerd Müller, for instance. Uh, while and the aggression of Betty Vogts versus Kreiv, uh I never understood why. Well, there was never a red card there. I mean, three, four real attacks on on him. Uh, there was even an attack on him that Cruyff was was given the the free kick against. Well, this is another aspect of watching it from a distance. You know, you you, you view it through the perspective of the time you're viewing it in. So if you watch it now, yeah, many of these challenges, you wonder why there wouldn't be a card. I guess watching it in the 80s, that I probably still would have thought that about certain issues, and maybe people did in the 70s too, but. Uh, you know the game was far rougher back then, wasn't it? I guess it was a bit more part of part of what just what went on. Absolutely true, absolutely true. Still, uh, if you see the yellow card that are given in that World Cup and the yellow card that is given to Bertie Fogs, he at least had two attacks that were more severe than the one he got yellowed for. So, of course, there was also the idea of of the relationship between Jack Taylor and and Kreuf, Of course, with the yellow card at half time, after the, the whistle was already uh, taken for half time, it didn't really help. Uh, and of course, at Kreuf, Kreuf's status at that moment was so big 
that as a referee to show your authority against the number one of the world, that is also something, at least this is how I experience that every time that I, I look at it. But yeah, that is uh, that had a that had an absolutely impact on the match. Still, there were enough chances, especially in the second half. Well, that's just it. Yeah, I mean, obviously there were two one down by half time. Um, and you which, see some which, great total football in that match, where yeah. the, the really the positions are taken over, where the, there's a huge fluid play, where there's real pressure on the German goal for a, for a, quite a while where uh, with exception of maybe one or two counters of the Germans, there's not a real uh, uh, German pressure on the Dutch goal. No, it's all the Dutch. I mean, yeah, you're right. There was one or two incidents. Like Muller uh, had a goal ruled out uh, in the second half as well, which maybe shouldn't have been, but that's a whole other question. Obviously, the Dutch, the whole pressure was, it was the Dutch. They were going, they were, they were playing some fabulous football in the second half. I guess it, it comes to the stage there where it, it turns into... Uh, what you might term as one of those days where it just won't go in. Uh, you know, the, the pressure, the deserved outcome that you kind of think that this pressure should be rewarded by, the chances created, the dominance of possession and play and space and all these things, but it just wouldn't go. You know, Seth Meyer made some terrific saves. There were some yes, of the yes. chances that were spurned. Uh, Rep had a chance late on uh, and so on. It, it just wouldn't go for them. You do get the distinct feeling when you watch it that had any one of these chances gone in and it gone to 2-2, that surely the Dutch would have gone on and, and seen it through then because the momentum was so much that way. In the same way, the momentum utterly shifted in the first half when Germany got their penalty. Uh, exactly, yeah, yeah. Which was slightly questionable as well, <laughs> I, I'm sure from a Dutch perspective. <laughs> you say but, slightly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I think we have posted on the Netherlands 1974 platform several times some videos, especially one that is shown from a camera that is running uh, a side of the line filming uh, uh, Hultenbein going into the, the penalty box area and, and then diving over the leg of Janssen. But I mean, Germany took that that gift they were given, I suppose, and obviously got their equalised, but then pressed on, which is what the Dutch didn't do after their goal, I suppose. And, you know, they, they got their uh, second shortly before half time. But, you know, the, the break, and you saw, yeah, the frustrations of Cruyff at, at that point, obviously with the decisions and so on, felt that things were going, getting away from them. But it, it isn't a tale that, you know, lost focus or, or ended up not able to, to perform the second half. They did. It just wouldn't quite come off. And that's, it, that's the it just the didn't That luck yeah. that you need just didn't happen. And, yep. and yes, uh, Rep, he missed three pretty open chances, um, and which, which uh, I, I have seen uh, all the other matches many times as well, especially when I'm looking for, for clips to put on the, on the platform. And there were more matches that he missed real open chances. There's even a, a moment that there's, there's this, in, in the final where Cruyff is really angry towards uh, Rep after missing a chance, but it happens also in earlier matches. There's also this moment that Cruyff scores against Brazil when Rep wants to congratulate him and Cruyff pushes him away. <laughs> I guess the other part is that the Dutch were incredibly lucky to even qualify for this World Cup because... Uh, we talk about dubious decisions. Well, Belgium uh, will, will rue one that went against them in the final qualifier that really should have counted. And that. And also been... in your book, you're writing about the Norway match. Yeah. Well, yeah. And you talk there about the the, yeah, the vote for captain. Obviously, that was uh, yeah. fairly, it was around the time that Cruyff had left for Barcelona in the aftermath of that vote. Um, so, yeah, those sort of stewing controversies and uh, personal gripes no, and, and, and there, there is a story that they were in a hotel when they did the voting in the Ajax team and after uh, they voted in favor of, of Piet Geiser, Kreif mm -hmm. went down to the only telephone that was in the hotel and immediately called his uh, father-in-law, Cor Koster, saying, yes, we're going to Barcelona. <laughs> yeah. That is a story told by the owner of the hotel it's a great story, and I can imagine that it really happened because um, uh, Cruyff is is very, uh, is, is I think in general a very kind uh, a person, very open, but also revengeful. That's that's very clear, um, and he has his reasons, uh, especially when it's about the boards of clubs. 
But yeah, you do wonder. I mean, this is, of course, the, the season that the World Cup ended with, I think, isn't it? So it's the 73-74 season that we're talking about here. So it's not that far removed from these incidents when the World Cup's happening. And the, I mean, the national team, I guess, changed coach as well during that time and bringing Mikkels in. Maybe that was in part to, to ease some of these tensions. I don't know, because oh, obviously he, he had control of them all at various times. Well, they, they wanted to fire Fadronch, which was this Czech, Czech Republic, yep. Czech, Czechoslovakia coach. And uh, uh, But uh, players like Van Hanegem, they stopped the, the Royal Football Association of firing him. And then the solution was to put one uh, above him, which was Michels. The problem was Michels still was with uh, Barcelona. Um, so even during the, uh, the preparation, he had to go for a match. He had to, to leave the training camp and, and go go back to, to Barcelona. Well, even in the week of the World Cup final, he went back to Spain. I mean, that that's yeah. just astonishing. Yes. <laughs> yeah, these kind of details that we hear later. I mean, <laughs> the story of uh, halftime that Cruyff was smoking a cigarette in the shower place, talking with Michels when they were deciding that not uh, Piet Kaiser would come in, who was like Cruyff's his, his, his icon and almost like his father when Cruyff as a youngster played in Ajax, but he voted to, to put in René van der Kerkhoff, mm -hmm. which was also, it's also an incredible story if you think of that. It also shows that his complete focus on what is the best for the team and not you know, to, to give any presence to any of his friends absolutely a winner and and i think everything was there to win that world cup and it didn't it didn't happen and that's why you could give a chapter i wouldn't have this book <laughs> and, and, then, and then also you combined it the chapter with the 1978 which is logic because it was four years later but also you you also noticed in your book that there's a clear difference in in the teams i mean in the way they played the way also they performed at the world cup which in 78, in fact, was very poor. Yeah, obviously, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's in, well, in the first round, firstly, that's obviously well known here for the, the Scotland game and, and the way that one panned out and how close, I guess, in the end, 3-2 didn't sound as close to the 3-0 victory it might have been. But there was a time where they were only a goal away from uh, getting that three-goal lead. Obviously, Archie Gemmell's goal is replayed over and over here. Um, and, and here, here, reps, uh, his 3-2. His which was the typical Gautheintje, uh, his nickname was. That was a lucky shot and it was amazing. It, it went <laughs> into the crossbar and that was enough for the to, to go to the next round. But it was right. not... It didn't have the style of the 74 team. Obviously, there was no Cruyff, no Van Hannigan, uh, which I guess... But that's is that's, that's similar to what we felt in 2010 when mm -hmm. we made it to the finals against Spain, when the team did some great stuff, especially, I think, uh, the way they played against Uruguay in the semifinals. Yep, but yep. it was never a team completely loved by, by the Dutch because it didn't play our Dutch style, our attacking style, our 4-3-3 style with wingers. and It was pragmatism uh, and it was trying to, especially the final, obviously, that's no, notorious, the approach the Dutch took in the final uh, up against a, a very stylish team, I guess a team that was built well, through Cruyff's foundations of Barcelona and so on, you know, that's where the foundations of that Spanish team come from, which is, I guess, ironic in, in some ways. Uh, but then to beat that approach... Uh, oh, and, and the match it was, could it was, have won. Was, I mean, it, it was, was... Oh, they could have won. I mean, Robin was, it was still, still Robin, exactly. Yeah. So, so even with that great Spanish generation that, that, that after that won the European Cup, that great Spanish generation, even against that great Spanish generation, Netherlands performed like could have won that World Cup, but still that that love that in general is felt for that team was incomparable to the love of the 74, even the 78, and also especially the 88 team. As well, it's kind of fascinating, sorry, is, is that obviously 78, it came within the width of a post from Renson Brink's effort, although whether it could have crept in, I, I will never really know. And Robin was clean through in 2010. Arguably, they came closer, the Dutch came closer in both of those than they did in 74 to actually winning it because they had the chances to do so when the games were level. Uh, whereas in 74, it was chasing it and chasing it, trying to get back uh, from, from a position of being behind. 
So that's again, 74 is the one that's really remembered because of the style, because of what it meant, because how it changed perceptions of the game. But for me, also it, the, the amount of chances that they managed to create yeah, yeah, final yeah. compared to the other finals. I mean, uh, also the you're uh, you're talking about uh, in your book also about the Netherlands 1998 team uh, and the, and the Argentine. 2014 team. Actually, in 2014, the semi-final against Argentina, with a team that we never, we never expected to even make it to the second round. But <laughs> Van Gaal managed to get to to get, and Robin was was amazing on that World Cup. I mean, for for me, uh, with with everything you can have against his way of play, and especially the Mexicans have. Um, <laughs> And they still have that that hashtag that uh, no era penal. <laughs> it was never a penalty. It still exists. The hashtag. Um, uh, uh, they they cannot get over it. But um, uh, he had that moment in the last minute of the semifinal when he his shot was uh, just uh, blocked uh, by Mascherano. And uh, um, and that's why I think Van Gaal felt in 2014 we're going to win that match, and brought his uh, last substitute before the penalty shootout, and he couldn't change Silasen uh, for Krill anymore. So this is the beauty of football. There's so many moments in all these big big games where it could go one way or the other. You know, there's a fork in the road, and fate takes us one path, and it could so easily have gone the other. There's uh, I guess it's so easy to sort of look at it from so many different perspectives of each incident and which one appeals more to you, which one you place more value on, because there's, there are so many of these moments, but there's some that are so much more critical than others. As you say, these chances, we talked about Robin in the 2010 final, but again, yes, 2014, absolutely, it could have gone the Dutch way. That would have set up a rather interesting final against Germany, <laughs> wouldn't it? But, yeah. you know, it, it, that, that's the, the fascination, I think, of football, because the, it's a low-scoring game, you know, because it's... Each, each moment, therefore, is elevated in its importance because scoring chances are rare uh, and goals are even rarer. But, you know, the importance of each of these moments, the sliding doors of it all, of how it could go this way or that, uh, and the fine margins that such tournaments are decided on. And it has such a bearing on how teams are remembered, how players are remembered. Um, well, that's what your book is all about. And so you went yeah. into that research, into all these games, these games that you didn't know from your childhood. You, you really had to dig into them. I mean, you, you started your book in, in Argentina in 1930. What I know from some Argentine friends who said always to me that in the first years of the World Cup, Argentina always was so arrogant that they thought <laughs> they were the best of the world that they never sent their best team. I think, well, to, to Argentina... Or is this arrogance to think that there is a better team possible than the yeah. team that loses the World Cup? <laughs> I think there's something in that. So <laughs> I think the Argentinians were deeply, deeply annoyed that Uruguay was stealing all the, the glory through the 1920s, you know, the two Olympic titles, the second of which came at Argentina's expense after a replay. The first, 1924, I think... The Argentinians just assumed that had they been there, they would have won it. Um, 28, they obviously very nearly did in Amsterdam. Um, it went to a replay. So that, again, could have gone either way. And 1930, again, a very, very close game. Argentina were winning the final, uh, had other opportunities and didn't quite push on. You know, this is back pre-substitutions. They had injuries and people had to sort of hobble around on the wing and that didn't help matters. <laughs> but again... They, they'd beaten Uruguay so many times. They'd lost to them frequently as well. But they, I think in all of world football, it's probably the, along with England and Scotland, is the most frequently played match that they play so often. And they did in those, in those times, especially Argentina and Uruguay. And Argentina were well used to beating Uruguay. They did it regularly. But the really big, big occasions, they all went Uruguay's way. And, oh, my God, that annoyed the Argentinians, something chronic. Because you're right, they saw themselves as superior, not just in terms of football. But it goes beyond that. It goes into nationhood. Yeah, they saw sure, themselves sure. as a superior nation in every way. They saw Uruguay as just this created buffer state between, between them province, and... A province of Argentina. 
Yeah, exactly. The only thing that made Uruguay not Argentinian was their football. That's how the Uruguayans saw it. That's that's the way they could distinguish themselves from Argentina. To everybody else, they were one and the same, and the Argentinians felt that way too. Uh, it's, in, it's, it's incredible if you think that it's a country with three million people. You know, it's it's yeah. it's, and then they they deliver Luis Suarez, just to mention one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it is astonishing. Yeah, I mean, it's. I guess that there have been spells where they haven't been so uh, so high. I guess from '86 through to more recently, they they were in a bit of a lull. But the talent they've produced, so it isn't just harking back to some bygone era where you can talk about, say, Hungary in the '50s and think, well, they've never come close to to matching these levels again, or Austria even longer ago. You know, they've had the. It's it's ebbed and flowed, you know, the peaks and troughs. They've yeah. risen again, and they. We talked about 2010. Obviously, they had a, a fantastic run in the World Cup there, uh, and gave gave the Dutch a good game in the semi final. But that wasn't an isolated incident. They then won Copa yeah. Americas again. They've won that more than Argentina and Brazil. That is astonishing in itself. Incredible, yes. And and I should have mentioned Francesco Lee, of course, which always yes. I considered as a kind of a cry of lookalike in his play, even in his face. Was that amazing. was a perfect time for for the number ten players like the mid eighties. There was so many. Obviously, Maradona was coming through, but you had Platini, you had uh, Laudrup, um, yeah. and Francesco. You know, there were so many elegant, elegant players at that time. Which I think you, you could sort of you can see the trajectory from Cruyff in the the seventies through to these players. You know, the inspiration, the development. But then pragmatism took over and it all it all changed and, and the, the approaches changed. So that was a glorious time for people like Francescoli. But we're still looking for the, for those teams that, OK, maybe they have the strategy, but there's also the space to move. And, and you know, the, let's say the glory of the total football. Yeah. And in, in some ways, uh, I mean, if you look at the Spain uh, of the last decade, uh, there you saw this element of of moving around the pitch, taking over positions. But uh, yeah, it's it is much more discipline uh, in in that sense. Like like you you also mentioned the Dutch to be the rock stars of the 70s. You know they looked even they looked like rock stars. I mean it could be Led Zeppelin there. Yeah, exactly, and this this is final. part of the appeal as you look back on it. They were representative, obviously, of the time and place. Now uh, things like the hippie movement that obviously been in America first and spread from there and through the late 60s. But as it sort of filtered through into Europe. Um, the Netherlands and Amsterdam, I guess, in particular, was a, a, a bit of a heart of that uh, that culture. Alternative, counter counter thinking, free thinking, freedom of thought and expression. And this is what comes out in the style of football. If you add in things like the, the you're talking there about space with the, the Spanish team. Yes, it's all about finding the space. And this, uh, if you've ever read Brilliant Orange by David Winner, um, which is goes quite a lot talking about the Dutch yeah. use of space. Obviously, it's a small country <laughs> that's, um, you know, partly below sea level and things like that. You know, crowded, small country, making use of space is, is vital. So his theories are, of course, about how in Dutch culture that's had to be the case and, and Dutch life. And so it was in the football. Um, yeah, yeah. But it, it, it's fascinating. And, and But you're, you're right there about their style, their look. That just adds to the appeal. They were the perfect embodiment of that culture of that freedom of thought and they played in that way too so as you look back now you can sort of you can wistfully uh, reminisce about a time or wish you'd been there to experience that time because obviously it all passes quite quickly and things change but they were perfect for that point in time and that location um, that they didn't win doesn't take away from that at all no and it's also that that you say didn't win I mean uh, I, I'm more and more. I try to think of well, they won. Because As would Troy. You quote him in the book. Yes, uh, it, it is. It is that it's the same fascination that that I have about the Argentines that never could embrace Messi because first of all they called him a PlayStation footballer. Second of all they had Maradona who brought them the World Cup, and third of all he never won anything international, or he was never as good in Argentina as he was in. Uh, in, in Barcelona, and then they win the the Copa America, and suddenly everything changes. And even if you listen to younger generation, uh, for instance, like uh, the son of my girlfriend who is uh, 13 now, 
When you ask him about the, the dilemma, Maradona or Messi, when you said uh, Maradona, he says, well, you know, but this today is, uh, uh, we don't think about the, our generation is not thinking about Maradona. We never see him. And besides, Messi is amazing. So, well, yeah, only is generation amazing. after generation, it, 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 it changes. But I still feel that what happened in that generation of Greif and Van Anachem and Neeskens and Kroll, that generation still echoes in our football of today. It echoed clearly in the 1988 uh, Euro, uh, European Championships team that won, where they really, where even Gullit always said that, okay, but we won and we were great, but they were really great. So there's always that idea that that was the momentum of the Dutch football. It was the coming out of the Dutch football the first time on the yeah. world stage. And also, like like you quote Cruyff saying that, okay, we didn't win, and that's why people still talk about this. Uh, if we would have won, you know, uh, it would have been normal. But if you think about other incidents in that World Cup, and again, I mentioned this in the chapter as well, Cruyff's famous turn against Sweden in the group game. Now, so it was nil-nil uh, in this match. He, everyone knows what the Cruyff turn looks like. Everyone knows uh, how it appears, who it was against, and all that kind of thing. What people don't necessarily know is what happened after it. And he crossed the ball and nothing happened. Yes. <laughs> so, but that yeah. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in the slightest because yeah. it's created this moment. I think, I think Rep, Rep missed that assist. Yeah, it, exactly. Yeah. So it created absolutely nothing. Uh, and it, it, the game ended up goalless. You know, it didn't lead to a win. It didn't lead to a goal. But that doesn't matter. Nobody remembers that. Uh, those of us who, who look into it and study it do, but that, that's irrelevant. Everyone knows what the Cruyff turn is. Everyone knows how amazing it is. Everyone tries to do it themselves. Yeah. But that uh, camera position also was perfect because he did it also, for instance, against Uruguay, but from a much more wider camera camera angle. Here also the camera zooms in quickly. Maybe you remember that in that yeah. shot, in the original shot, yeah. the cameraman zooms quickly in because he feels that something's going to happen. This was a, an impulse on a moment that became that famous and and absolutely the way it was shot helps uh, there too. Absolutely, um, but it's it's symbolic of the whole team though, isn't it? It's it's like a perfect, beautiful moment that didn't lead to something. A and it was a nil-nil match. Yeah, uh, maybe there, was no, there was no sort of tangible reward at the end of it, and that's obviously what happened to that to that Dutch team. They didn't have the tangible reward, but they had all the other rewards. And that's everything that's happened since. All the memories. You talk there about how Dutch football always thinks back to that. They always revere that greater than these other teams that have gone so far in a World Cup or even won the European Championship. And, and do you it's always about the 70s. And, and to, to outsiders too, speaking as someone who has no actual connection with the Netherlands, but to a team like that, it, it gives you that connection as a, as a football lover. It, it, it makes you want to see the Dutch do well now purely because of these moments way back in the past. And, and that football is always, the, the, the basis of that football is always there. Maybe not well executed always, but it is always there. That, that idea of attacking football, the, uh, the movement, the, the, the freedom, the, that spirit is always there. And the legacy is still happening now. Everything Guardiola's done since has been inspired by Cruyff and inspired by what happened to Barcelona, which is in turn inspired by Ajax in the Netherlands. You know, that, that sort of progression is still happening now. It's, it's, it's evolved, it's changed, for sure. And it's done at a faster pace. It's done in a slightly different way. But the whole concepts of the, the movement, the space and so on, uh, it's still all there. That's true, that's true. Is there any other country that you think of that has that same legacy? I mean, in, in your book, you're, for instance, also talking about the Brazil of 82. Well, here I could have had this dilemma. Netherlands 1974 or Brazil 82? <laughs> <laughs> now, this oh, is the right no. move on this platform. Okay, <laughs> this is not fair. Okay, but then um, from Austria or Hungary, yeah. uh, they never came that that far anymore. While the Netherlands was in, in three finals and two semifinals. Exactly, and Brazil won't feel bad about missing out on one, will they? They've had enough uh, victories to, to cope with all yes. of that. But yeah, Hungary, Hungary is a real must be a real painful one because they dominated for so year, so many games or years, sorry, in advance of that final, and they dominated for a couple of years after before the breakup in '56 with the revolution. Um, uh, that, that, 
It's so close. So one game like losing all of that time. It, yeah. One game. It's just incredible. Uh, the, the frustrations must be overwhelming. Yeah. You know, you're right. Other countries have had other opportunities and maybe they achieved it. Maybe they haven't. Um, but for Hungary, they're, they're never going to again. But, but the question, the question there is, what is worse, losing one World Cup final like Hungary or three like the Netherlands? Yeah, true. But at least you're getting the chance to win another one. <laughs> you're getting uh, back to them, And right? I think, I also think that Hungary never won the Euro. So at least we have the Euro's ATS. Yes. <laughs> that is still, there's still a cup to, to treasure. Uh, you also talk about the, the Denmark 86, the year of, of Maradona in Mexico, when they had a team that many of those players grew up in, in the Netherlands, in Ajax. Yep. Yep, later, exactly. later they moved to the influences there again. It may be not always through Cruyff directly, although some of them played with him when he came back to the Netherlands uh, in the early 80s. There was a few of them. Uh, I think Molby in particular talked about his time with Cruyff. So there was some direct influence, but yeah, even uh, indirectly, you're right. Several were in the Netherlands, several in Belgium as well, where the, the, some of the influences may have been similar. But yeah, exactly. There's a huge, huge Dutch influence on that team, and you can uh-huh. see it in their play. And Morten Olsen, who was the captain and the, and the, the libero of that team, later played in Belgium and in Anderlecht and became a coach. It was always a question of time he would become the coach of Ajax. And one day it happened. It was not a big success that, that we were hoping <laughs> for. But it was like there is this, there, there was this very strong 70s, 80s net connection between the Netherlands and Denmark, I think. And I also consider Denmark as a country with the same spirit of freedom. If you look at their movies, if you look at their the literature, uh, if, you, if you look at their children's television, for instance, um, that I know about because that is another part of me, where the, the freedom and the way they express themselves, is, is you see it, it resonated in, in their football as well. And that's why that team appeals so much. You know, I think I described it in the book as like total football on fast forward. You know, it was just yeah. a quick, quicker version of the same thing. You know, times change, the, the game speeds up. That's only natural. But yeah, you, you're right. That the whole freedom of movement, expression, that the the ideology, I guess, that you're talking about there, Denmark. It, it's very much the sort of. Uh, it, it doesn't, it's not conforming type of society in the same way that I, I don't see the Netherlands as a sort of conforming type of society. I see it as the kind of place where this freedom of thought is allowed to express itself, which yeah. not every country is. Some are a bit more rigid in that respect. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. You can see it in the football. Yeah, absolutely. And again, Denmark is another country like the Netherlands that you always, you always as a neutral want to see do well because you're harking back to these things from the past. They haven't always played that way. Neither have the Dutch, but it still wants, still makes you have that little connection to. Them. Yes, you think maybe it happens again. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you also, uh, in your book, you're mentioning Italy 1990, but you're not having a chapter about England. <laughs> and you're from England, actually from Newcastle, we just found out. Um, so yeah. how come? Because the, for me, if I remember that World Cup, that drama with the penalties against Germany. Wasn't Bobby Robson the coach? Uh, yes. yes. Yep, that's right. Who obviously has a Dutch connection uh, after after 1990. Was it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, Barcelona, which, let's say, well, yes. still consider half Dutch. Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, you're right. Um, I think, given the timings of the semi-finals, obviously by the time England's penalty shootout happened, Italy were already out. Uh, and therefore, it's, it's easier to then claim... Yes, if a few penalties had gone better for us, England against Argentina, against that Argentina without Canigia, yes, I, I could have seen England winning uh, in that circumstance. But the reason the chapter is about Italy rather than England, partly I don't want to just make it a sort of English-centric, it's like, oh, well, you would pick them kind of thing. Um, I want to hopefully take a more global view. But equally, I think the Italian story about how Italia 90 resonated from what it meant to them, what it meant to the nation trying to modernize as well and, you know, show it, showcase itself. It was the home of football at this time. You know, Serie A was what the Premier League is on its way to being now, I think, of, you know, it's the dominant, it's where the best teams were, but the best, but all the best players were in Italy. It wasn't like the now where you've got some in England, some in Germany, some in Spain and so on. They were all in Italy. Um, 
you could only have three foreigners for each team as well. So it was the cream of the crop. And then the Italians who were making up the rest of the league had to had to step up to that level. Um, it, it was off the back of you know 82 when they'd won, possibly surprising themselves and others. They'd, they'd had a dip and 1990 was sort of dragging them all the way back up again. And then you have the, the stories of Baggio, who just transferred to Juventus, and all yeah. the Ferrari that kicked off. But he was their great hope. And then you have Scalacci, who comes from Sunday. almost nowhere. Yes, exactly. Uh, and so he, he, only, he only scored seven, games, seven goals for Italy, and six of them were in this World Cup. Uh, it's just astonishing. But in that tournament, he could do no wrong until he went and tweaked it a little bit in the semi-final and... and as soon as Kanija's equaliser went in, the sort of um, the the thin-skinned nature of it all—it uh, was all—it was all an illusion, uh, and and that's the same as Italy as the country as well, or in terms of the World Cup, you know, they, these beautiful stadiums that they built, but they were all built in the wrong place, and they're all built on dodgy, corrupt money, uh, and all of this, and suddenly it all came tumbling down around them. Uh, I just found that the more intoxic- intoxicating story than the English one, which obviously, equally in in books and stories and TV programs in England, we've we've seen that so many times. Um, right. We you obviously love drama, and that also explains yeah. <laughs> why you wrote this book. You know, the Nearly Men with all these teams that were glorious, but somehow, I wouldn't say failed, but somehow didn't get that cup at least. Exactly. Yeah. It's only failed in terms of lifting the trophy. What I'm hopefully trying to show is that they didn't fail, that there's more ways to succeed. And I guess Cruyff is the perfect embodiment. Cruyff's Netherlands is the perfect embodiment of that in, in the legacy uh, and the magical moments and the memories and, and things like that. And the influence on on football, not just in the Netherlands, not, not at Ajax, but so many other places that maybe he was never even at or people who played for him or with him were never even at. The influence is still going on. Those kind of things are, you know, it's not as tangible, but it's just as worthy uh, and possibly more so in some cases. And it's also whether whether that the impact of all of those things would have happened the same if they had won. You know, do we remember these th- these teams more? Do we talk about them more because they lost? And therefore, is their legacy bigger because they lost? That's well, a sort of intriguing question good, about it. Absolutely. Good good point also. Uh, who is still talking about West Germany in 1974? Exactly. And there's only a couple of World Not Cup me. winners who... Are, no, well, well yes, quite. I have to because I'm, I'm, I'm making these posts for the, for the, for the platform. But it, it clearly, it, it, it is not a team that um, also didn't really play very good at that World Cup. They had their issues. Yeah, absolutely. They and, and, and they were very lucky with the rain against Poland. I mean. Oh that... yes. Well, yeah, and that's and I mentioned this in the book. If if it hadn't rained that day, would this chapter have been about Poland instead? Uh, because they were a fantastic team in the 70s. Uh, they obviously knocked England out in the qualifiers as well. Um, <clears throat> and, but they were a terrific team. Uh, Yes, absolutely. They could have beaten West Germany on that day. Had it not been raining, I think maybe they well well would have done. Who knows? Then the chapter could have been about them losing to the Dutch in the final. <laughs> we'll never know, sadly. But yeah, West Germany, they, they were obviously European champions at the time. They, they went on to reach many more finals in the years that came after. Bayern were obviously dominant at this point as well, having sort of taken over the Ajax mantle. Yeah. Uh, at that time. So th- there was obviously th- so many layers to that rivalry. Uh, of the Netherlands and Germany at that point, um, Ajax and Bayern being the sort of club embodiment of it. But their style of play wasn't it, it wasn't total football, but it wasn't so far removed as to be sort of a, a huge clash of styles. Uh, they, they were a good team too. They'd probably peaked two years earlier, I think, in 72. That, that, that was their the best uh, that they, they produced, whereas 74 was obviously the peak of the Dutch. Uh, they were on the downward curve there, but yeah, uh, just like the Germans, it never stops them winning it, does it? Exactly, it is. Uh, it's, they are always a favorite uh, for any World Cups. Again, for the next uh, World Cup, even though the, the team is not as convincing, and even in our crisis years, we beat them. That we didn't qualify for the World Cup, but for the Nations League, we 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 beat them. So 
uh, but still they they will be a favorite. There's the, there's this famous word in German that explains the way they look at their, their play of football, which is Laufpensum, which is all about running. It's all about, you know, having the condition to run and run and run. Nobody says, you know, to, to do tricks with the ball or to, you know, to, 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 to move places. I mean, I always think of, there are so many countries where you can think of an attacker as so skillful that would be the best player of that country. I mean, we're talking about Maradona or Messi in, in, in Argentina. Um, we, we, we were talking at the beginning the dilemma of Pelé versus Neymar, which was not a dilemma for you at all. Um, <laughs> but in Germany, Litbarski, for me, I mean, I cannot think of any other player that had those skills, that technical skills that could that could drive uh, with the ball and pass several players than Litbarski. But nobody thinks of Lidbarski when you think of Germany today. I guess yeah. Uh, in, in when he was ever, he played in three World Cup finals, didn't he? Or was in the squad at least for the 92, yeah. 86, and 90. Um, yeah, he was a consistent part of it. But I guess he, there was always a, some other name that kind of overshadowed. Obviously, Matthias. Matthias. Yes. was personality. It was the personalities that were bigger. The dominant characters, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that that sometimes overshadows. That sometimes is part of it. I mean, I think Matthias probably in 1990 was the best player in the world at that time but his sort of reign as that probably didn't last that long well um we but, have some we have some problems with him uh, yeah you know, oh, oh, for, for many reasons <laughs> basically they, the main reason of course is because germany is much bigger and it's our neighbor but <laughs> but still uh yeah no the the the, the schwalbe is it's a german word and and uh, that's why the only the only thing that the, the huge talented robin brought to his game that absolutely nobody liked was the, was the Schwalbe, his, his way of, <laughs> of diving. But still, but still, I think against Mexico in the World Cup 2014, it was not a, it wasn't a Schwalbe, it was using a clever, clever way of walking against the foot. Um, yes. The Mexicans, <laughs> the Mexicans still, uh, I was, I was in Mexico a couple of years ago when uh, Netherlands played a friendly match and uh, all the Mexicans in Mexico City that were watching the matches in cafes and in, in restaurants, when Robin got the ball, were whistling. You could hear whistles all over Mexico City. And Mexico City is very big, I can tell you. It's almost, <laughs> almost 30, 30 million, million people. It was, they, still, they still couldn't get, get over that. I think we have the same with Mateus. That's why the 88 victory in Hamburg in the semifinal beating the Germans, uh, that, that was incredible. Um, well, I guess it's like a cleansing experience. I mean, obviously you can bring war connotations into it all, but from a footballing perspective, I guess it was like... It wasn't... We, no, we I don't think it was a war anymore, no. Yeah, so... That was much more in sorry. 74, because uh, this is one of the things that Van Hanegem, his his motivation for that match was that he lived in the in the south uh, west of the Netherlands, in, in the province of Zeeland, where his uh, village was bombed and his father died in, mm -hmm. in the war. So there was always this, this aggression, this special, but the generations after that, the generation Van Basten, they joked about it, but it was not really the rivalry. Uh, I mean, you had the rivalry Van Basten versus Kohler when, when Germany played uh, uh, the Netherlands or when AC Milan played. Kohler was in Bayern, I think, at the time. But you see the same rivalry played out in Serie A. So obviously AC Milan was Dutch and Inter Milan was German. So you see the same the same thing. And I, I'm sure everyone in the Netherlands was uh, red and black rather than blue and black at that point. But it, it was like a, the, the sort of victory in 88, the semi-final victory. Obviously that was a sort of cleansing, cathartic moment from a footballing perspective. And that's equally what I kind of see in the 98 win over Argentina. It, it took a little longer to get the chance to actually right that wrong in some ways if you like yeah but to then do it with a goal like Bergkamp's at the end uh must have been rather rather satisfying from a from a dutch perspective that's, that's a classic especially if you can never go back and change what happened in in 78 at least it, it gives gives something to cling to there well it, it must have been an incredible uh, experience for you to go through all these years to put all these teams together uh and 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 to kind of qualify in your head um, how how this this these dramas, uh, this great football combined with these dramas uh, over all those years, uh, how how to to position that. So so my my question would be, uh, where do you 
consider this team of Netherlands 1974 in that glorious row of, of countries? Uh, right up at the top, although alongside a couple of others, possibly uh, up at the top. I, I find it very hard to sort of pick uh, a, a favourite, if you like, or, or one that I would say was the greatest team that didn't win. I find that quite hard because there's so many personal thoughts and feelings can come into that and different perspectives. But I think the manner of it, uh, the legacy it's produced is possibly arguably greater than any other. A lot of that's to do with one person, as we've talked about, but I, I, I don't think it's just that. I think it's 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 kind of the team, I guess, all Dutch football is judged against in one way or another, rightly or wrongly. I guess it's a hard ideal to live up to. Um, but I think the the sort of memory of them, it, it, it casts a shadow in one regard, but it also... Uh, it promotes what's good about football and gives you that good feeling about it. So yeah, they, they are without doubt one of the very top ones within this book. I, I think I found it one of the most interesting ones to write about as well, because there's so many thoughts about the sort of value of victory versus the value of legacy, memory, uh, and great moments. I, I, I saw more of that in the 74 Dutch than I did in, in the other teams that I talk about in the book. Um, so uh, from that regard, I guess that, that puts them top of the pile in, in, in some, some aspects. Uh, I, I, I do think the, uh, the legacy they provided, it, it, it makes you question the whole purpose if you like in terms of what's what's the most valuable sure i i guarantee everybody dutch would have loved it if they'd won the trophy you can't change that exactly everybody would would exchange a beautiful failure for a slightly less beautiful victory we would <laughs> everybody would but unlike the other times the dutch lost in the final this one has far more to cling to in terms of what what it meant, what it still means. And this isn't just in the Netherlands. I can assure you, uh, people from all sorts of other countries feel the same way. Well, maybe not the same way, but feel strongly about that 74 Dutch team, which you don't get with many others uh, in quite the same way at all. Brazil 82 causes similar feelings for a lot of people. Uh, but there you don't have that additional layer, as you said there, the Netherlands have still not won the World Cup. So you have that extra layer of agony, I guess, that Brazil, for all the beauty that team produced, I think they got over it with all their other victories. Yeah. Whereas the Netherlands, it, it, it must be a case of like, oh, if only, if only. If only, yes. Well, at least once in a lifetime then. <laughs> so maybe maybe Qatar will bring the glory. We, You never know. I mean, uh, with Van Gaal, you never know. You never know. Um, I think this, this is a very nice uh, roundup of, of everything we discussed. And yeah, I mean, this is also why I started the Netherlands 1974 platform. It happened during the World Cup that didn't, Netherlands didn't qualify. And everybody said, well, I will cheer for Belgium. And I thought, no, I'm not going to cheer for Belgium. I love them <laughs> as a neighbors and I have some friends there. But I want to talk about Dutch football. So this was the moment that I thought, <laughs> let's start in 1974. And if you see the reactions coming from all over the world, I mean, from from China to South Africa to to Chile to anywhere, people come with their memories. And I'm, I work a lot in Latin America. Whenever I went there into a taxi and they asked me, where do you come from? I said, the Netherlands. They would say, La Naranja Mecanica. The first thing they would say. And then it was Cruyff. And then it was Rensenbrink. The reason it was Rensenbrink, of course, was the 78 World Cup. That was very close because it was in Latin America and it was in Argentina and it was... The, the fascination of the ball and the post in the last minute. But always and still, whenever I travel, whenever uh, I'm somewhere, people will talk about Netherlands 1974. They will talk about Cruyff. They will talk about the, the Clockwork Orange. It is, it is incredible. Uh, it really defines the Netherlands much more than any hero, politician or historical event or painter that we have. That football is our identity. But that's because it was so much more than just football. It, it resonated on so many levels for so many people. And, and I've seen total football described. It's not so much a tactical formation as a state of mind. And I think that 
that's why it appeals to so many people on so many uh, in so many different countries and so Absolutely, many different yeah. cultures because it was so much more and and what they represented you know that freedom the counterculture the cool all of that thanks so much Aiden, for this uh, conversation and for all your experience your knowledge your your passion for football and and the great book that uh, I can really recommend people because it's so great to see all these countries that just had one glory, one dream to fulfill. And we're still talking about them. And that is, I think, the best compliment we can give to all those countries. Absolutely. Well, I really enjoyed it. Thoroughly enjoyed it. So thanks for asking me on. Uh, and uh, Thanks so much. Blast. Thanks very much.